this is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Hey there folks, this is Screen Watching. It's our weekly deep dive into what we've been watching on screens. My name is Dan Barrett, joined as always by birthday boy Simon Foster. Oh, that's very sweet of you. You're making me feel bad because I largely forgot yours on last week's show, but thank you for acknowledging that and for all of you who will send me greetings on my 56th birthday. What sort of a 56-year-old spends his time talking film and TV on a podcast, but I'm happy to do it. Thank you, mate. I mean, I think you take your cues from uh, Mo, uh, Mo Sislak from, is his surname Sislak? I think so. Uh, Mo Sislak yeah. from The Simpsons. And it's like, what sort of 56-year-old talks about film and TV on a podcast every week? And then you say the best damn 56-year-old in town. That's exactly right. And and there's yeah. some more elderly types on doing the doing the podcast rounds with your Marins and your... You know, there's a, there's a, we, we're a force to be reckoned with us 50-somethings. We're taking over the world or taking back the world. It was ours for a while there back in the 80s. But anyway, I'm ranting. How are you, my friend? I look good. I mean, I'm just thinking that when I think about Simon Foster, I think of a slightly senior David Stratton. <laughs> yeah, I'll wear that. That's fair enough. I've been called worse. Mm. Yeah. What anyway, are we talking Simon, about today is... on the screen watching Look, we will. So it is a frosty Thursday evening as we're recording this, and we have a whole bunch of TV shows where if you and I are feeling chilly now, we'll be warmed up by the end of this, because boy, oh boy, have we got some titles this week. On my TV docker, I've got, well, definitely three of the biggest shows that people would like thinking about when the year started out, and people were like, oh, what are the TV shows of 2023? These are definitely three shows on that list. So first of all, there's a brand new Marvel series. It's called Secret Invasion. And this is a little bit different to the other Marvel shows in that all those are being based around like one of the sort of existing superheroes. But this is less superhero orientated and more orientated around some of the spies of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So you got Samuel L. Jackson in there as Nick Fury, and this is the first uh, real TV sort of run for Nick Fury as a character. Kobe Smulders in there, reprising a role as Maria Hill. You've got some new faces in the form of Amelia Clark. People would know her as the blonde lady from the Game of Thrones. But here she's got brunette hair, plot twist. Wow. Uh, and then you've also got, uh, wow. Pe- yeah, and you've got Peep Show's own Olivia Coleman. I'm sure she's been in other things as well, but really, who cares? But she was definitely in Peep Show, though. Uh, Martin Freeman's in there, Ben Mendelsohn, uh, Kingsley Benadir. Yeah, it is a big cast of humans, and some of those humans aren't actually humans at all. But we'll talk about that in the podcast. What you have to say about that? Yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm. Yeah, and certainly it did sound interesting. Does it live up? Uh, uh, Hold tight for the review. Um, Also, I'm going to take a look at Walking Dead's first uh, big small. There's been a spin-off to the Walking Dead TV series already, and I think it's quite easy to think about The Walking Dead as yesterday's news, but the reality is the show was the biggest thing on TV for a couple of years there and continues sure. to have a very large audience right through to the end. The original show finished up, its first spin-off uh, continues on, and that was never really a huge success, but there's a couple of Walking Dead TV shows in the pipeline. And these are direct spin-offs from the TV series. The other one was a prequel show, and so it's a bit different. But this is the first okay. proper spin-off. It brings two of the big characters from The Walking Dead into a new TV show teamed up together. 
Uh, you've got fan favorite character Maggie Green, played by Lauren Cohen, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan there is the villainous Negan or Negan. Negan. Oh, the bat I'm sure it's pronounced Negan. The big baseball bat. Oh, yeah. I get it. Yes, I know. Yeah, him. I, I, haven't, I mean, I, that, that's the pop culture read for me. I never really watched a whole lot of The Walking Dead, despite having a real, you know, love of the zombie genre. But I do know who Jeffrey Dean Morgan and the, the Bat episode was. So this is this is all interesting. Big franchise entries on the, the television screens this week. That's it. But then there's one third one, which is probably less a franchise, but also highly anticipated. Uh, people a few years ago would probably remember a movie from Boots Riley. And it's the one movie that is created, and I'm suddenly just trying to think of the name of the film. It is um, Sorry to Bother You, which is an incredible oh, piece yeah, of Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a great yeah. film. But Boots Riley knocks it out of the park. Uh, he's like a former rapper, hip-hop artist, and uh, decides to pivot towards film. Releases this movie. Incredible film. It's the only movie he's done. And so it's now been like five or six years since that film came out. And he's got a TV series. So lots of eyes on this TV show called I'm a Virgo. Does it live up to the potential that we saw from Boots Riley, filmmaker, as he now pivots towards TV? Strap yourself in. That's going to be quite a conversation in a short while. Now, Simon, you've got a couple of movies which are pretty big deals as well. Yeah, look, I'm going to go a trip down franchise lane with the latest entry in the Transformers uh, movie series, Transformers Rise of the Beast, without Michael Bay at the helm. Instead, it's directed by a young man named Steve Kappel. Um, and I'll also be looking at, in a very on very serious front here, the uh, movie called Reality, starring Sydney Sweeney, um, a true life story of how a young lady became a very high-profile whistleblower um, in the U.S. government, so yes, yeah, some some uh, interesting points of view to uh, to tackle in our review segment this week. Simon Foster, there's two things you need to know about me. Number one, I love oh, yeah. cinema. Yeah. Number two, Simon, I love Sydney Sweeney so 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 much, so much, Simon. Okay. I didn't pick you. For, have we done Euphoria on the show? I guess we have at some point. Did, did you're obviously a Euphoria fan because I don't know her from much else. Look, I think Euphoria began before this podcast began, so I think I probably maybe discussed it with uh, Chris Yates, my former podcast co-host on the previous review podcast I was doing, uh, Always Be Watching. Mm. He is a good man. Uh, Have you met Chris? I'm sure you have. Yeah, I did the show. I did that podcast with that. That sort of morphed into okay. this, if I remember back in the in the oh, day. So yeah, maybe. Course, no, I love Chris. I mean, maybe you can remember more than so like two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so. And, um, uh, Simon, stop trying to interrupt me. Uh, let's just point out Sydney Sweeney, also star of season one of White Lotus. So, you know, she's certainly True. been around. She's been in a few movies at this point. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Let's get on with the show. Yeah, we probably should. Let's dive right into the actual review segments. It stinks. Simon, I am very interested to know what your opinions are about that movie where large transforming robots battle other transforming robots and go, oh my God, look, there's a dinosaur robot. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's called Transformers Rise of the Beast. Let's have a little look at this. For centuries, our kind has stayed hidden on Earth. But darkness has found us again. Prime. This is about the fate of all living things. So the movie, the fifth, I do believe, in the series, maybe the sixth, I've kind of lost track, I really hated the last few, um, starts off on the homeworld of the Maximals, who are an advanced race of Cybertronians. 
or with beast mode that comes under attack from the planet-eating dark god Unicron. Now, his soldiers, the Terracons, and an army of Predacon scorpions led by Scourge, seek to obtain their master, for their master the Maximal's greatest piece of technology, the Transwarp Key. You're taking all this in, there'll be questions later, which can open portals through space and time. Now, under the command of Optimus Primal, the Maximals use the key to flee to our planet, planet Earth, landing in or around Brooklyn in 1994, where we meet young Noah Diaz, played by Anthony Ramos, uh, a young uh, Latino boy who's trying to find work and struggle to help support his family. Um, also running parallel to that storyline is the uh, story of the museum intern Elena Wallace, played by Dominic Fishback, um, who has discovered a, an ancient statue of a falcon which may or may not hold the extra part of the transwarp key that's going to kickstart this story into motion. Um, now, I have no fondness at all for the Transformers film. Um, quite enjoyed the first one, drifted away from after that and really disliked the last couple. So I went into this film, um, let's say a little bit, how would you put it, cautious, not very excited, but what I found was that it told a very almost sweet and simple story about friendship, um, both from the robots or the, the, the Transformers point of view and from the, the struggles of our two young uh, heroes and heroines in the, the lead role, um, Noah and Elena. So what the film has done under, under Steve Capel, the director, is streamlined all that extraneous um you know, struggle for universal conquering and all that sort of stuff that bogged down the Michael Bay versions and turned it into a um, almost like an intimate kind of action epic, which is a, a strange series of words to put together. But um, Steve Capel's script just uh, streamlines down the characters, makes it about a very sort of focused directive, focused storyline, nothing new in terms of of what these movies offer up. It's really just becomes a chase movie to who gets and can keep the their element of the transwarp key. Um, but also you've got some some really good uh, voice performers in there to, to, to bring the the uh, Autobots to life. Peter Cullen returns as Optimus Prime. Ron Perlman uh, plays the, the leader of the Maximals, Optimus Primal. Peter Dinklage is uh, does great voice work as the leader of the Terracon Scourge. Michelle Yeoh uh, plays one of the Maximal Warriors. She's a, a peregrine falcon. And funny man Pete Davidson, who I've really just cooled on over the last few years. He does some very funny work as Mirage, who's like the link between the Autobots and Noah's character. Um, so i got to say, nobody was more surprised than me when I sort of stumbled out on this and thought, yeah, that's that's good escapist entertainment um, and the sort of thing that Hollywood should do well more often. Um, so this one's probably, after the first film, my second favourite Transformers movie, and I was not ready to... To, to say that, did not expect to say that. So it's called Transformers Rise of the Beasts in cinemas everywhere as we speak. Good birthday movie for me. Usually on this podcast, we do like one, one, and we sort of switch around, but I've got a bit of a thematic thing I want to work through with three different reviews, which I'm doing back to back. So Simon, wow. let's first focus on Secret Invasion, the brand new Marvel TV series starring one Samuel L. Jackson. How much do you know about your security detail? What do you mean, how much do I know about him? Fury? We're going to be very careful now. So 
So, Simon, you may remember when the very first uh, Marvel MCU film came out, it was a little picture called Iron Man. And the big thing that had everybody's tongues a wagon was right at the end, they did this thing called a mid-title sequence, like the mid-credit sequence. Brand new thing back then. I mean, not brand, brand new. I mean, Ferris Bueller had done it and Skeletor came back at the end of Masters of the Universe. So, you know, not entirely brand, unlike Wayne and Garth were, you know, playing guitar and stuff at the end. Um, sure. But ultimately, no one had really seen like this and like a big sort of scale thing, especially where it introduced the new plot element. The new plot element at the end of Iron Man was the introduction of Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. He tells um, Tony Stark, aka Iron Man, dude, I'm getting the Avengers together. It's happening. And so people are sitting in the chairs, the Marvel fanboys, the Marvel zombies, as some people call them, their hats flew right off their heads. Uh, they need to change the ventilation in those cinemas to like, because this is happening too often in those uh, Iron Man screenings. But the fans were going crazy over it because they realized what Iron Man, the movie that I just watched, was doing was setting up a movie, um, you know, possibly a franchise thing where suddenly you might see the Avengers, people's favorite superheroes from the comic books that aren't the Justice League, realized on screen. And it was an exciting proposition. So Nick Fury has been part of the MCU right from the very beginning. So as there was an MCU universe forming, suddenly it was Nick Fury at the center of it. And as the first couple of films came out, you saw Samuel L. Jackson make a few appearances through there. You saw all these films link up. So when that Avengers movie came along, Nick Fury, right there at the center of the story, are uh, really getting the Avengers um, into gear. As all the bigger movies started playing a role, Nick Fury was a constant presence through it. In with him came this character, Maria Hill, who was also a member of um, S.H.I.E.L.D., the government agency of sorts that Nick Fury was the leader of. And so these two characters became like the focal point around which all these movies were kind of ducking and weaving their way through. However, after Endgame, which is that one where all the Endgame or what, what was the other part of it? Um, there were the two films. What were they called, Simon? Mm. Uh, one was called Endgame and one was called um, My Soup's Too Hot. Yeah, so My Soup's Too Hot, which I think was the first one of the two, um, ends with the blip taking place, at which point uh, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury is driving in his car thinking, mm, 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 this is some delicious soup. The only problem with it is it's just too hot. And that's where the title of the movie came from. But as that's happening, uh, the blip takes place and suddenly he looks at his hands and they're all going black sort of um, smoke sort of stuff going off into the oh, ether yeah, and he vanishes. Yeah. Now, pretty much ever since that point, Nick Fury's role in the MCU has been kind of uh, a little bit sort of lackluster, I'd suggest. We saw one more the appearance. Fungary. It was sure if you want to go down that route, if you want to bust out one of those $4 words. Uh, it's a tough economic climate, uh, but Nick Fury hasn't really been part of it. We saw him in a prequel, which was that Captain Marvel movie, where we saw him as a younger agent in the 90s getting caught up with um, the Scrolls, which were some sort of um, alien race that were infiltrating Earth or something. I don't really quite remember. And this is what I wanted to head to with this, Simon, which is that Nick Fury's been the linchpin of all of this, and they've tied his storylines to this thing about the Scrolls, which is this alien race. But real talk, I don't actually really remember that much about the Scrolls from that Captain Marvel movie. All the things that I have retained from that film are not really Scrolls related. I know they ended up on like a spaceship at the end and there was some sort of action sequence or something probably up there. And I remember Nick Fury made friends with the Scrolls. And so 
Oh. But didn't she beat up Jude Law and then, um, yeah, that's right. Jude, something happened Jude Law was in it. Like, I have no recollection of that really at all. But I do remember that Nick Fury made friends with them. Ben Mendelsohn was there and he was revealed to be a scroll. And that's kind of where they left that up. Right. And so Secret Invasion is based entirely around the scroll invasion. So largely what's happened is he made fr- friends with the scrolls. Oh. Uh, ben Mendelsohn is uh, this guy named Talos who is on Earth, I think, along with a number of other scrolls who are pretending to be humans. Uh, there's one scroll whose name is uh, Gravik, played by Kingsley <laughs> Benadir, who were introduced into this one. He's basically not really happy with the arrangement that the scrolls have with the humans to allow them on there. And so he kind of wants to rule the, rule the planet. It's like classic bad guy stuff. Uh, so he's more or less acting as like a terrorist or like an MCU version of a terrorist within, you know, just real life. So most of this is taking place in Russia and he's got a terrorist threat that he sort of wants to make. Uh, Nick Fury sort of catches wind of this. Uh, there's a couple of other government agencies, so MI6 is involved as well. So Olivia Coleman comes Good into Lord. that, playing a spy named, and great name, Sonia okay. Fowlsworth. Okay, and the thing is, Sonya like, it's Fowlsworth. all very, yeah, great name. But it's all Let's generic see. spy business, super generic through mm-hmm. and through. And I look at this, and then I think about um, all the other spy stuff that we've seen in recent years, which are all way more interesting than this. Uh, you think about, say, for example, uh, Slow Horses, which was an Apple TV show sure. from uh, about a year or two ago, and that's things that's like season three now or something. Much older though. They oh yeah, absolutely. Go for that but kind of complex writing that in a in a Marvel show, <laughs> would they? But the thing is, like, you sort of look at what they're doing with inspired genres at the moment. Mm-hmm. Things are just a lot more interesting and lively and fun. But this is just going through a lot of the hacky, stereotypical spy stuff, the traditional drops that you might see around the place, and it just isn't really particularly lively. And then you bring in this MCU element to it, and it's all based around the scrolls, characters which I had limited engagement with at all and just retained nothing. And I kind of feel that I'm probably not necessarily alone on that. I'd say your average viewer probably doesn't really remember all that much about the scrolls, let alone where they're from and what their political opinions are and are they good guys or bad guys? And Ben Mendelsohn was one of them, apparently. Apparently he was in that Spider-Man movie where they went to Europe and I don't remember him in a, at all. Like it's, it's no, there's been too many things that have either. happened since then. There was a giant pandemic, like life's gotten busy and I don't remember anything from these Marvel films that are Might based I around the scrolls. superhero fatigue? Might I suggest? Uh, look, I mean, I wouldn't actually say it's superhero fatigue because, frankly, if Secret Invasion was a bang-up, fun, action-adventure spy romp with Samuel L. Jackson playing Nick Fury, like, I'm bang-up up for that. Like, I was actually excited to sit down and watch Secret Invasion, but what I got just didn't really live up to the ideals. And also, well, final thing on this... because there was a lot of advanced, a lot of advanced um, sort of buzz that this was going to be the MCU's Andor, that it was returning to really adult, smart up-to-market yeah. filmmaking and all that sort of stuff. And so for it not to be like that, could the marketers have lied to us? I mean, heaven forbid. Uh, but heaven yeah, forbid. like that, that's the sort of experience I was really hoping for. And that's certainly not present. And also, oh, wow. what the hell are they doing having the very first Nick Fury TV show where Nick Fury doesn't have his eye patch? I mean, come on. Come on. Jeez, Simon. So this it's is just free. So this is So we're going back in time. No, the Captain Marvel movie went back in time, but this takes place in present day, if not maybe even a year Why in the has future. He got his eye patch? 
I don't know, Simon. I'm sure it was explained in one of these movies that I don't remember at all what happened with his eye patch. This is very troubling. Okay. It's, All right. So, it's BS, Simon. Secret I, Invasion I, is a. Not into it. Is, is, <laughs> Secret Invasion seems to be a bit of a, a letdown. What's, what's, what's the next big franchise one we're checking out? So that's it. So uh, Secret Invasion, obviously streaming on Disney Plus now, episode one, and then there's another seven weeks of this guff, which I'm sure I'll watch because it wasn't terrible, but also it's just not really good TV. It's, it's just a bit disappointing all through. But then that takes us to The Walking Dead, Dead City. You don't trust me. Hell, I wouldn't trust me either. So, you want to tell me where the hell we're going? Manhattan. I got a plan. Talked about this at the beginning. This is a thing where the premise of it is, is that they've taken the established characters of Maggie and Negan. These are two characters that don't get along particularly well. Uh, largely because Maggie's uh, the love of her life, uh, played by that guy that went on to be in Minari. You know, that guy, Stephen Yeun. Uh, Stephen Yeun, yeah. He, yeah, he was brutally murdered on screen by the Jeffrey Dean Morgan character, Negan. So you'd have to understand they're not really entirely on, you know, that, it's, it's not a close link between the two. But they're anyway, not the blo- they're not chummy. Not, not chummy. The blurb for the show, Maggie and Negan travel to a post-apocalyptic Manhattan, long ago cut off from the mainland, the crumbling cities filled with the dead and denizens who've, sorry, denizens, said denizens, but I made a little pun calling them denizens, who've made New York City their own, full of anarchy, danger, beauty, and terror. And basically what this really is, is if you thought, hey, look, The Walking Dead, I want to do a spin-off series, but look, we don't necessarily need to give it a Walking Dead level budget. We could maybe chop that thing in like a quarter, maybe even an eighth of what we were spending on the previous one. But we'll bring these two beloved uh-huh. cast members in, pay them up a little bit, and the fans will come a flocking. And that's what this is. This feels like a real cheap fan film experience of what The Walking Dead is. And I found myself wow. in the very opening sequence. It's a flash forward to Maggie already in the confines of New York City or Manhattan specifically, I guess. Um, And she's sort of there watching uh, Manhattanites from afar, sort of, you know, doing zombie things, or zombies at this point. And she's sort of sitting there, and then suddenly a couple of zombies sort of sneak up on her. And I'm thinking, you've been in this zombie wasteland now for, like, a good decade or something. Like, surely you have better protections than to be surprised by these couple of slow-walking nitwit zombies. Like, it just... Just from the get-go, I was frustrated with this program. And then the... Obvious low budget, the obvious um, weak plotting, like none of it was really sort of doing much for me. Uh, on a positive note, uh, Zelko Ivanek, uh, who you've certainly seen in TV shows and movies yeah. countless, countless times. That guy is just a, you know, all-timer for being on screen doing stuff, usually evil stuff. Uh, he plays a villain in this one who's clearly a man sort of of money, or at least is faking being of money, and is one of the few humans that kind of runs Manhattan now. Uh, and there's like a couple of sort of fun scenes with him, but by and large, this is just another franchise extension, which just doesn't really have a whole lot going for it. Uh, maybe is, for the this fans. This is very but, troubling. Yeah. This is very troubling because isn't this the first of like two or three franchise extensions? Yeah. If this is going to be the standard that that we're going to get from this delineation of Walking Dead characters into their own series, then that's this has got to be a a, a very troubling development. And look, the thing I'll give it this is that of the three spinoffs, like this is the one with the coolest name. I mean, The Walking Dead, Dead City, like that's a cool name. Uh, the next it's one along shit. is this spinoff that has the Daryl Dixon character. 
And you know what yes. they've called it, Simon? The Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon. Oh, come on! No what on earth are they doing? But, Simon, <laughs> let's move on, because basically I'm two for two of these big, highly anticipated series that have just disappointed me entirely. Come so, on, make me happy. Say something positive, Dan. Well, look, I mean, can I? Can I even do that? So... As I mentioned, we had this film coming out, this film from a bunch of years ago by Boots Riley. And it's this mm. film called Sorry to Bother You. If people haven't seen Sorry to Bother You, stop this podcast right now. Go and watch something so, uh, Sorry to Bother You. Like, it is just incredible cinema. Simon, you've seen that film? Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it. We sat down. I can remember having, watching the film. It was a, 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 a terrific piece of, I want to say, Netflix, maybe? Oh, it might have been on Netflix, but it certainly wasn't made for Netflix. It was a you know theatrical no, okay. release. Yeah, that's probably where I saw it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, terrific film. I didn't know. I didn't know that Mr. Riley's name was attached to it. So, or it was attached to I'm a Virgo. So that makes this instantly more interesting. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I mean, I'm you know I'm a Virgo is a terrible name, like just shockingly bad. So you know, I mean, no one's going to pay attention to it. Dead, I'm a Virgo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I would watch that spinoff from The Walking Dead. Excellent brand extension. But sorry to bother you, if people haven't seen that, the the hook of the movie at the very beginning is that there's a young guy who ends up working for a telemarketing firm. He's not having a huge amount of success, and he's just using his authentic African-American voice. The guy that he works with is played by uh, Danny, um, what's his name, from Lethal Weapon? Danny Glover. Danny Glover. Yeah. Danny Glover's working there, and he leans in and says look, you can't use your black voice. You have to use a white voice. And so in this call center, he starts using his white voice and it's got a fun sort of visual gag of, you know, suddenly this other white voice starts coming out of his mouth as he starts using the, uh, making his phone calls. Suddenly his sales skyrocket. Uh, and then the film takes a very decidedly different turn from there. Uh, but look, it's an amazing program. Uh, well, movie, check that one out. So, he made this film and basically impressed every single person that ever saw that movie or even thought about watching that movie. Uh, lots of people pretended to have had seen it. And you can always tell those that did and those who didn't from what they focus on. Are they focusing on the tele like the telecall sensor or are they focusing on the other gear and the other gear? Oh boy, Simon. But I'm a Virgo TV series for Amazon, uh, seven episodes. And I went into this knowing absolutely nothing other than the fact that Boots Riley was involved. And I wanted to go in knowing nothing because Sorry to Bother You was such a um, series of discoveries and exploration that I kind of thought this was going to deliver very similar, um, you know, um, plot twists and turns. And look, I'm going to say I'm certainly not disappointed by this by any means. Why are you so damn big, bro? The premise of the series, as I discovered, is about this kid named Cootie. Uh, as we are uh, introduced to him, he's an infant, and we see him through most of the series as a 19-year-old kid. But we watch him grow up, and the thing that's different about Cootie is that he's a 13-foot-tall kid, okay? Oh. He's a really, wow. really big guy. Uh, his aunt and uncle are there looking after him, and uh, they're played by Mike Epps and Carmen Ajogo. And the two of them right. are very protective and don't want him engaging in the real world. Now, he kind of just goes along with it because he doesn't really know anything better. And in a sense, they're kind of bad boy bubbying him. 
Okay, so there's lots of things they sort of tell him about the world that isn't really quite true. They keep him away from bad foods like hamburgers. So he keeps on seeing these ads for what are some pretty delicious looking hamburgers. And he's told he's not able to have them because they're kind of poisonous. And so they, you know, he shouldn't be eating it. But of course, he lusts for it. Uh, what's interesting is that eventually he ends up making himself known to some of the neighborhood kids and obviously goes public very quickly after that as they started introducing him to some of the many delights the world has to offer. Anyway, I'll leave that as kind of the like hook on it. But what's really fun about this program is that one, there's great performances, like the jokes, the laugh out loud, funny. And in the course of the first episode, which is, I'm going to say about 38 minutes thereabouts, uh, you know, you suddenly understand who the characters are, you know the journey that they're about to set out on, and you know that because Boots Riley's involved, things are probably going to get a little bit weird. Uh, things to also know about the show is that um, it's all practical effects. I mean, there might be a bit of computer animation sort of stuff happening sort of within it, but largely, and largely wasn't intended as a pun, but, you know, fits quite well for this. Uh, Take it you're watching this 13 foot kid, but all of it is very much sort of shots of perspective and like insert sort of shots where they've sort of layered it over and whatnot, but they are all practical effects. And you really feel that this is a tangible thing. And so coming straight off the zombie show, which admittedly has pretty good makeup, but is, you know, somewhat computer augmented um, and then secret invasion, which just has a lot of computer special effects there was just something that was just so um, honest and real watching I'm a Virgo. Uh, it was like exactly the tonic where, where, that I was looking for. Where do we know him from? Why is why is he coming out with this sort of stuff? Is it a standout background or does he come from, from some sort of oh, genre of filmmaking background? Well, Simon, if you listen to the beginning of the podcast, I actually mentioned uh, his background is uh, largely sort of based in hip hop. Uh, he's oh, okay. been heavily involved in political activism, uh, largely through his music. He used to be a part of a group, I think, called The Coup. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's been around this for years. Really and look, uh, yeah, I'm certainly not really sort of, you know, part of the hip hop scene. So I can't really sort of speak sort no. of, uh, to too much strength there. No it may surprise you, Simon, that the whiteness that is Dan Barrett, not necessarily deeply into the hip hop. But as a filmmaker, Boots Riley, you know, two for two now. And the other thing to keep in mind with this is that, yes, we've got a large 13-foot black kid in there, but also, as with every story like this, where there is, like, this kid, he needs his antithesis, he needs some sort of a villain, so enter Walton Goggins in this as a guy who has created a um, comic book character called the hero, but also the hero exists in the real world, and Walton Goggins playing both the creator of a Jay Whittle as well as the superhero, and the two cross paths oh, is all I'll sort of say with I that. But anyway, this is right up your alley. I totally get it. No, but, like but Simon... No, no, Simon, it is not what you're thinking about. But I'm on board. Um, That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, um, so it's very much Boots Riley playing around with the conventions of what's happening sort of in modern cinema, but also infusing it with his own political beliefs and there's practical effects. And Simon, after watching two absolutely sort of um, turgid just regurgitations of what we've been experiencing through pop culture. It is just so exciting to watch something like I'm a Virgo, which is fresh, which is actually sort of heartfelt and has something to say. It is really great, funny, engaging television. And I desperately want people to check out this program. All right. It is called I'm a Virgo. It is on the Amazon Prime channel. Um, I'm going to see your positivity and raise you some positivity with my review of reality. 
Look, you've had a good career. I don't think you're a big bad master spy. I think you just messed up. I think you might have been angry about what's going on. The Russians attacked our democracy and the, the president campaign participated in it. They didn't attack. Reality. Were you surprised to see us today? Finally, reality a review of reality. I know exactly. This is this could go on for a while. I've got a lot. Sorry, of I haven't things. seen this movie, but I mean, reality as a concept. Two thumbs down, I say. I oh, got that right. Um, on June 3, 2017, a young woman, 25-year-old reality winner. What a great name. Um, she has been running errands, just picking up some groceries. She returns home to walk her dog and look after her cat. Um, she's living in a rented house in Augusta, Georgia. There's a rat-tat-tat on the window of her car. And there are two gentlemen standing there, uh, Josh Hamilton and Marchant Davis, who play in this film, two FBI agents who want to have a chat with her about some documents that may have gone missing from her work. And what unfolds is a very tense 82-minute story about how um, reality uh, just because she was so frustrated with the state of the country in 2017. Trump had taken over the White House. Fox News was blaring out in her, her government workplace. Um, she decided to release some documents to a, uh, a radio station investigative journalist who uh, was able to use those in a very public way. It was traced back to her. And what you get in this film is the exact transcript from the two FBI agents uh, uh, interviewing reality in the um, side room of her house as other FBI agents um, move through her move through her belongings and through her house to try to try to pick up on clues as to what she's up to if she has any sort of greater uh, national threat status. Um, she doesn't. She's just a young woman with a bit of a conscience who was sick of the way her country was going. So she decided to do this spontaneous and irresponsible um, action. What it cost her was five years of federal prison time. She was uh, held up as, um, uh, albeit a, a domestic terrorist in many regards, and treated with um, all the legal barbs that the Espionage Act could unload upon her. Um, as the two FBI agents who sort of first gained her trust and then uh, sort of start to um, really unload upon her. Josh Hamilton and Marshall Davis are terrific. Uh, but this is all Sydney Sweeney's show, Sydney Sweeney's film. You know her from, from White Lotus and Euphoria, um, and she's certainly a, a very attractive young actress, but in this one she goes very bare bones. She's just a middle-class girl with hopes for her career and her country who just wanted to see things go better than they were going. And this small act was the undoing of her life. Um, it's an incredible performance. And the way the film actually um, uh, portrays the redacted moments of the interview that can't still can't be aired on, on television, um, it's done in this really stylized and really effective way. So um, i got to say, this is a slow burn a uh, very tense story about how a young woman with ideals is is kind of picked apart, and it's um it's kind of tragic to watch, but it's also fascinating to see how the government worked to to bring down this real American person. She there's a quote in there because she's a she's an Air Force officer. There's a quote where she said, "Yes, I've done wrong, but I promise to 
look after, I promised to serve the American people and this was what I thought I was doing. So it really shows how blurred the the notion of democracy and freedom and, and all of those sort of things are happening in the US right now. Terrific show. It's called Reality. Uh, I'm getting a bit of a jump on it. It's in cinemas next week or if you have the the um, uh, overseas channels, you can watch it on Max right now. But coming to Australian cinemas next week. You had me at 85 minutes. <laughs> I know. I was so thrilled when it was so short. But, you know, as it unfolded, it was I was gripped by it. It's a terrific piece of filmmaking. Yeah, look, I mean, yeah. So uh, that's definitely two things that people should check out this week in their viewing. That's exactly right. Now we have got a very interesting intermission up ahead. So this week, my friend, we had a bit of a back and forth with The Flash copping a lot of bad press and um, not that long ago, Ant-Man sort of stumbling at the box office and Black Adam and Shazam 2 both sort of feeling, falling well short of where they needed to be. In our intermission this week, we're going to look at the notion of superhero fatigue. I've called this the rough road ahead for the big screen superhero. Um both Warner Brothers or DC and Marvel have blown some big dollars on their last few blockbuster wannabes. And this year we've still got Blue Beetle and the Marvels and Aquaman 2 and a couple of other ones. We saw Craven the Hunter trailer drop this week as well. So do how do we define what superhero fatigue is and is it really a thing that Hollywood needs to address very seriously in the months ahead? Why don't you kick this off? Well, I mean, super fati- superhero fatigue is just that idea that people are like, oh, we've had years of superheroes now, like, you know, I'm bored with it. But look, here's here's the reality, and this is kind of why I think that superhero fatigue is a bit of a bullshit idea. Uh, a couple of things. One, if superhero fatigue is really a thing, then why did that uh, most recent Spider-Man movie make like a billion dollars in about three minutes of release? Um, number two, and this is going to be Spider-Man-centric again, just recently they released an animated Spider-Man, which has made like close to $500 million off a $100 million budget, uh, critically reviewed with, you know, very rapturous response. Audiences are gaga for it. The fans have gone nuts for it. Like people love that movie. So isn't the problem less that it's superhero fatigue and really people are just tired of cookie cutter bullshit movies. And it's not just the superhero movies that have been stumbling at the box office. Other things like the most recent Fast and the Furious movie, like that didn't perform particularly well. And so we should also establish that a lot of these movies we're talking about have actually made like a fair bit of money at the box office. But the problem is, is that a lot of these superhero movies cost so much money to make. And that Fast and Furious movie as well, so much money's made. I think Fast and the Furious was like a 250 or $300 million budget. It's like madness and that kind of stuff makes sense when you're making a billion dollars at the box office but these films just aren't making a billion dollars at the box office they're making a mere like 600 million 700 million at most like it's just not really quite sort of making its way over and the films that actually have done pretty well are those that are kind of a bit sort of um creative or at least are a little bit sort of fresh and imaginative and are priced at a budget so it's an animated spider-man film it's the recent animated super mario brothers movie and that Super Mario Brothers movie, yes, it's based off a franchise that's been around for as long as I've been an adult. 
Um, and well beforehand, I mean, Super Mario Brothers was part of Donkey Kong and like that's what, like 79 or something or 83. Like it's, you know, for most of my life, Mario has been around, but we've never seen a live action movie. And it was the realization of something that a lot of people had been sort of, you know, excited to see. And yes, it was the live action film, but let's forget about that. We don't need to talk about that so much, but it felt fresh. There was just something different happening with that animated Mario film, the Spider-Man movie we reviewed this on the show. Like that film felt different. It is an artistic triumph. These other movies are just generic cookie cutter. And no wonder people will say that that's hard of superhero movies because most of the superhero films presented to them have been just really, really base and not particularly creative or, you know, really worth many people's time. Um, yes, you're arguing the point that the Spider-Man movie is the exception that proves the rule. I think that um, the faith that DC and Marvel have what turns out to be falsely put in uh, properties like The Flash or Ant-Man or Black Adam, um, second or third or fourth tier characters that uh, they're trying to pump up uh, on the basis of the success they've had with Captain America's or Iron Man's or, or the like, um, shows that it's a it's a the public isn't going to stand for uh, that kind of as you say cookie cutter, subpar, lazy, generic, overly familiar type of filmmaking anymore. One thing I will point out, and and um, the point I make is is that. Cinema goes through cycles. There was once a time when you couldn't walk past a cinema without seeing three or four musicals playing, or there was a time when you couldn't, uh, you know, the biggest things at the box office were westerns or, or so on and so forth. And I and there is a point where audiences will grow uh, too old for and grow out of and start to turn against uh, the superhero films and, and all the tropes and cliches that they represent on the screen, just as they did all these other genres. And that we may be at that point where that is happening now. If we have another couple of releases in the months ahead, whether that's going to be um, Craven the Hunter or the Marvels or, or one of these sort of not a big, bold blockbuster type of property that that marvel dc can force upon us if we have another couple of one of these the audience will literally say that's it we're done this period of our life is over how long ago was the first marvel film 15 or 16 years ago with iron man i think that was uh 2007 2008 yeah okay yeah so yeah we're at a point now where i i think i don't think superhero fatigue is bullshit i do agree with you that it's a uh uh a hard sort of problem to define. Um, but I think in trying to define it, we have to look at the creativity that's being wasted and, and, and underdeveloped in the, in, in the films that are hitting our multiplexes at the moment. And, and uh, what, what's going to take cinemas, those films places, the blockbuster releases, I don't know. Um, but something will eventually. Well, okay, so there's a few things to unpack here, which is that, first of all, the movie's coming out for the rest of the year. All of them are going to suck, and all of them are going to be more people saying superhero fatigue. The Blue Beater trailer, if that movie, when Warner Brothers looked at that movie and said, we can release the Blue Beetle movie, but we can't release that Batgirl movie, I have to wonder how bad that Batgirl movie was, because Blue Beetle looks 
just wretched. That thing just looks awful. And I say this is a big fan of Blue Beetle. Uh, so it really pains me that Blue Beetle, the cinematic, like, you know, thing here is going to just You've be You've also got Madam Web coming up with Dakota oh, well, Johnson. Uh, let's, coming up early let's, next year. Let's get started in a second. But that's next year. So this year you've also got the Marvels, which is another Captain Marvel um, thing. And apparently we can all see what my retention was of that last one, which I didn't hate that, but it wasn't really a particularly great movie either. And the Marvels, like I saw the trailer for it and that looks almost on par with Blue Beetle. And Aquaman 2, look, I didn't like that first Aquaman movie too much. And it's probably going to be a bit more of the same. But those are the three films that I think are probably going to crash and burn at the cinema. But ultimately, the question sort of becomes, like, yes, that's this year, but audiences are a bit fickle, and they'll just come around for something that looks good again. We've got another Spider-Man animated film happening early to mid-next year. Like, that'll bring people back watching a superhero thing. Um, you just mentioned that Madam Web movie. Uh, you know, we haven't seen any footage from it, but, like, it sounds kind of promising. It's got a pretty fun cast attached to it. And, again, the Spider-Man movie seems to still be driving audience attention. So, And he's a superhero, as far as I recall. Um, so it sort of does seem yeah, like but a it's spider. Not the same, you can't call it the same superhero sort of story as the the cookie cutter Flash, Shazam, Black Adam, um, Ant Man stuff uh, that's coming Simon, out. There's, there's no if, comparison to what to, to what they've done with the Spider Man story, which was full creative Simon, control and the, uh, the Blue Beetle. The Blue Beetle movie is very much cookie cutter, based entirely out of Spider Man. Like it's it's the same thing. It's just with this version, it's a young Latino kid. Uh, it's essentially just Spider-Man with a different costume. Uh, but, like, ultimately... But not animated. Just looks like not a bad movie. Oh, no, no, but, like, you know, we, talk, we were talking about the Madam Web film, but that's a live-action film as far as I'm aware. Yeah, see, well, none of these hold any sort of the same, but I can't see any of these holding any kind of urgent appeal that something like the the um, new... The, the, All the you have to do, films are, Simon, a movie just has to... A movie just has to release a good-looking trailer that gives an audience a reason why they might want to see the film. The reason the Flash movie crashed and burned wasn't because people didn't know who the Flash was. Uh, you may not have known the Flash, but the Flash has been known to generations of kids growing up on the Cartoon Network Justice League cartoon. Like, that was a pretty big deal. Lots of people do know that character, but that movie just didn't really offer much. Like, I went along and saw it because I'm a Mad Keen Flash fan. But I will say, like, I wasn't sort of super excited by what I'd seen as part of any of the trailer or promotional material. Uh, the Shazam movie, like, it's kind of the same. Like, all these films get released and audiences can sniff when it's just going to be a bad movie. And I don't think that either of those films are particularly bad, but also they didn't give an audience a reason to be interested or excited about it. It's not that they're superheroes. It's just that people can sort of smell something which just... You know, there's no valid reason for it. People have to pay 20 to 30 bucks to go and see these things at the cinema. You have to give them a reason why they think that's a valuable expense. Like it's and financial, it's by the your time own, they're spending. By your, own ad, by your own admission, bad superhero films have made a lot of money in the past. You, you, from your anti-Snyder perspective, Man of Steel, <laughs> Batman and Superman, Justice League are terrible films, but they've all made upwards of $800 million at, at the global box office. So these... Oh, look, many of those made over a billion, by, by, Simon. Yeah, exactly. So by yeah. by that reckoning, the films you know what the difference up, is? which don't have... There's a really clear difference as to what's happened. It was the pandemic. So... Like, it's that thing where they talked about the pandemic as speeding up people's behaviours, like, uh, five years faster than they were probably going to happen. 
Uh, that might be what's happened here, but what I think has actually happened is something slightly different, which is I think that that pandemic break where we didn't see that many of these movies coming out and there was the um, lack of ritual of going to the cinema to see like the new Marvel movie. And so like Black Widow came out, but it was direct to premium video on demand. And the same thing with that Suicide Squad movie, most places around the world, people saw that at home. And then as they started ramping up uh, attendance again, like there wasn't a reason to go to the cinema with one of these big release movies. So nothing's really popped in that same way. And I think it's kind of just broken people's habits. Like people aren't sort of going from that one event to the next event in the way they were. I think people have had a bit more breathing space and are now a bit more reflective and evaluating each film as they're coming out saying, is this actually worth my time to go and do it? Because I could just stay at home. I could play video games. I could watch things on one of the many streaming services I've got these days on my fairly decently large TV that I purchased during the pandemic. And large screen TV sales went up quite dramatically during the pandemic. Like there's just lots of reasons why you don't necessarily want to go to the cinema anymore. And it's just that habit's been broken. And so I kind of think that's what's happened there. That's where the difference is. Mm. Yeah, we're getting into our usual sort of territory here where I, I think that the quality of the film still brings people back to the cinemas. And I don't think... Uh, just another superhero film because there's been certainly been films that have performed well at the box office that aren't superhero there's you know things topping out at 200 million and making money at the box office so um i i don't know if the audience exists anymore and the next few months will tell who believe that just heavily marketed superhero films are worthy of those kind of dollars, even if we are going out to see different movies at the cinemas. Well, well look, I mean, the question is, and look, you said this a moment ago, like, what else is there? And this is the problem that cinemas face at the moment, which is that cinema, like, ticket prices have gone fairly high. And in order to go to the movies, the movies that are bringing people out are largely sort of spectacle movies. I think this weekend's going to be really interesting because we're seeing the first R-rated comedy we've seen in some time with the Jennifer Lawrence movie, which I thought you were reviewing this week, which is you know disappointing now that you, I realise that you haven't I reviewed it. Oh, I, I thought it was like, okay. I think it's an interesting movie, but I don't think many audiences are going to turn up for it because I don't think word of mouth is going to be that strong because it's not as hilarious as I think it probably needed to be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, essentially like audiences need a reason to go to the cinema and it's kind of superhero movies and large spectacle that's driving people to go and see stuff. But if it's not a superhero film, like what is that genre that's replacing it? Cause there's not really any signs that there's anything else. So you can talk about fatigue all you want, but I think ultimately it comes down to, does it look like a good movie? Does it look like a bad movie? And all we've got to show for this year has just been a whole lot of fairly mediocre to bad movies. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you look at things like The Little Mermaid and even Transformers is, is done well in the in the week since it's been released. And, I mean... Oh, but that hasn't done Guardians of the though, Galaxy right? is also the Guardians of the Galaxy is also the, the um, sort of exception that proves the rule in that there's such a warmth for those that group of Guardians characters that even a film that had some sort of downside to the reviews managed to find, a, find an audience... Um, I, th I mean, reviews on that one were, like, pretty decent, though. Like, it wasn't, like, stellar. Like, you know, it wasn't probably as well-received as no. the very first movie of the series. But by and large, I think there was still yeah. a good enough reason for people to want to go and see it. And that's what it comes down to. Is there a good reason to go and see this movie? And that one certainly provided it. But again, 
that film didn't do as well as the previous two movies and is not past a billion. Like, I don't think that outside of Mario, like anything else has passed a billion yet this year. I think that's kind of it. And what's coming up for the rest of the year is not going to hit that billion mark. So we're just looking at diminished box office this year. And it's largely because the movies just haven't been particularly, like, audience appealing. So I don't know. I just think it's tough to say that in the year that we've had Avatar, in the years that we've had Super Mario No, Brothers, Avatar was last had... year, technically, Simon. By three days. Okay. But, yes, you know what I'm saying. People <laughs> have come back to the, to the audience. Anyway, no, but I'm not right, saying so the cinema's dead, where... Simon. I'm just saying that the selection of films this year, like, it's not bringing people out in the, dry, in the volumes they need to, and especially off the large budget that these films have. So you look at what we're talking about this week, which is that Flash movie, that had so many costs associated with it because there was just cost overruns everywhere. So, like, that was a $300 million movie that's not going to recoup its expense because, you know, box office just hasn't been that strong for it. So you got that problem. Fast X, ha- was it Fast X? Fast something or other? Yeah. Yeah, like that's got the same problem. Okay, Large budgets, not going to pass a billion, so that's not really quite going to recoup what they need to justify these things to the expense going forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how the summer plays out with with Mission Impossible just around the corner, with a lot of big films coming week by week with the with the well, we've actually, summer just ahead of us. We'll see. We've actually seen most of the big around. films, though, Simon, is the big thing. So Mission Impossible is going to be a really interesting one. Uh, there's a lot of hope that'll pass that billion-dollar mark. I don't think it will. The previous Mission Impossibles haven't quite made it to that point. And uh, film lovers tend to really sort of dig those movies, but they haven't really Crew's quite sort of had back. that. Crew's coming off the back of Top Gun Maverick is gold well, at the moment. I think That's the thing. Look, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's going to pass a billion. Like, I think it'll probably reach the same sort of dollar figure we saw with that last Mission Impossible film, which is like about 700-ish thereabouts and like that'll be a decent enough result but they've spent a lot of money on this movie as well so they'll be happy enough but you know champagne won't be quite what they're expecting we'll have to do a summer movie recap in the months ahead so the jury's still out i think because i believe there is superhero fatigue you don't think there is superhero fatigue but all right we'll have to sort of um wait and see where where it plays out let's roll on through this podcast my friend this day in history you ready okay hit me June 24, 1916, which silent era star became the first actress to negotiate a million-dollar contract? Not a clue, but good for her. She also built a studio, Mary Pickford. She created United okay. Artists with a bunch of other people as well. Uh, June 26, 1981, which military comedy starring an ensemble of actors from Saturday Night Live and SCTV premieres in U.S. theatres? I will say with this movie, which is called Stripes, I've only ever watched the first 15 minutes because I get thoroughly bored after that 15 minutes. It starts out strong and then just loses me every time. You are so out of touch. June 27, 1987. <laughs> so out of touch with this as... 1981 movie. Who debuts as 007 in the 15th James Bond film, premiering in London on this day, June 27, 1987? Uh, surely that would be one Mr. Timothy Dalton. One, Mr. Timothy Dalton in The Living Daylights, which is one of my favourite Bond films. Actually, the other one he did, Licence to Kill, is my favourite Bond film, as regular listeners will know. Okay, birthday time. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. June 24, 1950, Nancy Allen, the beautiful Nancy Allen. June 28, 1948, 
Kathy Bates, June 28, 1966, John Cusack, and June 29, 1944, Gary Busey, all fellow Cancerians of mine. What do these four actors, they've all made a certain type of film, I guess you could say. They're all attached by source material. Let's put it that way. Uh, gosh. A certain type of movie with source material, that kind of throws me. The theory I had was that each of these actors have played roles where they've held someone else in captivity. So you've obviously got Kathy Bates, uh, well-known for Misery. Well, Gary Busey does that in real life, so. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you've got Kathy Bates doing that. You've got John Cusack, where uh, I'm pretty sure that that movie where he was in the hotel and was every character and they were all him. I can't think of the name of that film. Identity, it was awful. Yeah. Identity, yeah. terrible, terrible yeah, movie. James yeah. Van the director of Indiana Jones. Yeah, yep. uh, pr- pretty, sh- pretty sure that you know some people were held captive there. Uh, Gary Busey held uh, Lieutenant uh, Riggs hostage in that first Lethal Weapon movie, and That's then true. Nancy Allen. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that she was at some point holding someone captive. Like obviously, all of our hearts. She's captured my heart. Yeah, you literally took the gag right out of my mouth. Well done. No. If you look at those four pictures, and you can see those on our Facebook page, listeners, um, they've all starred in Stephen King films. Stephen King adaptations, Kathy Bates, Misery, John Cusack, 1408, as well as an uncredited cameo in Stand By Me, Gary Boosie in Silver Bullet opposite Corey Haim, and the one Nancy Allen in Carrie, all featured in our birthday of the month. Uh, sorry, just completing my sort of thought about the hostage. She, of course, did star in Stephen Spielberg's 1941, which kept an entire audience captive. Yes, it captured their hearts. Well, I'm not sure it captured their hearts. It certainly captured about $8 from them and didn't give it back. (laughs) There we are, my friend. We're at the end of my birthday podcast. It's been such a joy. I'm going to go and have some cake. (laughs) Okay, sure. Uh, It's a bit too late at night for cake, Simon. All that sugar. (laughs) Not for me, my friend. I'm past caring. (laughs) 56 is where it happens, people. Uh, folks, this has, of course, been Screen Watching. It's our weekly podcast where we talk about all things screen. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and on Blue Sky at the Dan Barrett or Blue Sky, just Dan Barrett or whatever that Blue Sky stuff is. Uh, you can start my day with my free, start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. Find that one at alwaysbewatching.com. Uh, it's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And quietly, the newsletter I sent out today has probably been my favorite one I've sent out in some time. I thought it was a good one. Uh, And on Fridays, I send out the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which is a very helpful guide to all the new movies and, well, sorry, all the movies that are streaming and the big shows that are launched on streaming that week. Nicely done. Uh, at Simon R. Foster One on the Twitter, read my words at screen-space.net. Uh, everything screen watching can be found on our social media pages Facebook at Screen Watching Podcast, Twitter at Screen underscore Watching. On our Screen Watching YouTube channel, you can see my interview with director Remy Grillo, son of the great tough guy actor Frank Grillo. He's got a new movie out that he's directed called the resurrection of Charles Manson. It's better than it sounds. Um, or you can email us at screenwatchingpodcast at gmail uh, with all your opinions on superhero fatigue, on our reviews, or on pretty much whatever you want to ask us a question. Yeah, it's like the Reddit. Just ask me anything, as long as it's about superhero fatigue anything. and how it's not really a thing. <laughs> 
Shall we get out of here? I'm very excited about next week's show, Dan Barrett. We will be turning the whole show over to one Mr. I. Jones, Professor uh, Indiana Jones, uh, to coincide with the release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So be prepared for everything felt hat and bullwhip. Yeah, so you'll be able to hear little pearlers like me say that his name isn't Professor Indiana Jones. His name is Professor Henry Jones. Indiana is an honorific that he gave himself named after the dog. But Simon, let's discuss that next week, shall we?